everyone. Welcome to the podcast of the Vineyard Church, Chester Springs. We invite you to join our mission to love like Jesus, and you can connect with us on social media or visit our website, csvineyard.org. Now for this week's talk, brought to you by co-lead pastor, Amos Grunendijk. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Vineyard. You can have a seat. So glad that you joined us today. We are in a series called Equal, and we are talking about how men and uh, women are equally gifted, called, and have equal authority. And I'm just going to jump in today. Uh, We're going to cover a lot of ground. I'm going to pray because I know that this is a, for some, controversial topic, for some, a subject that has been a source of pain, of debate, of conflict. And so I'm going to invite the Holy Spirit to come and be our teacher today. So come, Holy Spirit. We welcome you. We pray that you would give us tender hearts, uh, open minds for the vision that you have for each of us, for each of our unique callings and giftings, for the places that you've given us authority to lead and to shape culture and to serve and to love. So God, infuse this space with grace. We need you. We trust your word, and we ask for you to illuminate it for us today. Amen. So we're going to use a lot of Bible today. This is a little bit different. Uh, We always use the Bible, but I'm going to be more of like a professor as we outline like the, the big narrative of the Bible's teaching. And so I would recommend that you have a Bible, maybe do some circling. I will also have the texts up on the screen today because we'll be moving so quickly through so much. Um, but, but my main thesis, remember I said professor, is that the Bible's vision for men and women is that they were equal in gifting, calling, and authority. And this is established in the Garden of Eden, distorted by the fall, promised in the Old Testament, and fulfilled in the New Testament, in the coming of Jesus and the sending of his spirit in particular. Now, when we talk about this subject, there are a few texts that seem to seem to contradict my thesis. And so I want to take a step back and talk about how we read the Bible and a few temptations that we will feel as we run into these uncomfortable texts. The first, and this, is, this makes sense, right? When we come to something in the Bible we don't like, we get out our scissors and we just cut that out and pretend that it's not there. The problem with this method is that it actually puts you in a place in authority above the teaching of the Bible. If any time you come to a saying of Jesus, a teaching of Paul, uh, even uh, a story in the Old Testament that you don't like or doesn't jive with your like cultural suppositions or maybe even your theological dispositions, to pull out the scissors means you've actually put yourself above the Bible. And I mean, not, not that you must believe this, but typically Christians believe and the Bible teaches that all of scripture 
is God-breathed and has authority. Now, if you, if you say that this is one way to solve the problem or to treat those texts, the other side of the spectrum is to look at the text like this. Now, what is a single brick good for? Maybe throwing through a window. But one of the temptations when we face some of these, like, texts, is to take them in isolation. Like even if, if, you, if you had the whole teach, like if you had all the bricks, you could do something with it. You could build a house. But if, all, if, if what you're doing is out of like this big picture, pulling out one text and using it, for instance, as a proof text to prove your point, you can use it as a weapon, but it's not much good in isolation. And so when we read the Bible, we always want to think about context and what God is trying to teach us about himself and his vision for us in life. Now, the middle way I'm going to represent with this candle, and I do this for a couple of reasons. I would say as we read the Bible, keep the candle in mind. The first is because we need the Holy Spirit to help us understand what the Bible is teaching, and we need the Holy Spirit in order to apply the teaching of scripture to our life and context. To not just make it an external truth, uh, an abstract idea, but to transform our hearts and the way that we view God and the world, we need the Holy Spirit. But the flame, uh, one of the temptations is, oh, whatever the Holy Spirit seems to be saying to me, I'll just go with that. But we can't disconnect what the Holy Spirit is saying to us today from the ways that the Holy Spirit inspired the Bible. And so with this candle, we have the flame. Uh, It helps us see both the Bible, helps us see ourselves, it helps us see the world, but it's it's got a foundation here. And so when when we read the Bible, we want to think of this candle as like scripture, like there's a whole body of teaching that we want to keep in mind. There's a way to read the Bible. There's the technical word for this is a hermeneutic. We, we want to have worked out a way that we read the Bible and consider the, the audience, the context, the, the grammar. Did I say grammar already? There's going to be a little grammar today. <laughs> um, we, we want to take the Bible as an authoritative uh, object in our life, as inspired with authority. Now, as I said before, I think, ooh, the Bible's teaching, the vision that the Bible gives for men and women is to be equally gifted, called, and have equal authority in the world. Let's start with Genesis 1. This is page 6, I believe, if you have your Bibles and the NLT, Jesus-centered. This is a very familiar passage. It's very relevant to our subject because there's something that we may miss when we read it. This is when God creates the humans. So in Genesis 1, verse 27. So so God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blesses them and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. Now, if you think only men should be leaders in the church or in the world, you've missed it. Because this 
command to rule and to reign, which is sometimes applied to kings. For instance, King Solomon's domain is used, the words, the Hebrew words here are used to describe King Solomon's domain. It's addressed to both men and women. These are words that describe leadership. Now, of course, it doesn't take long for God's vision of the world and his relationship with humans and the humans' relationship with each other to be distorted by sin and what we call the fall. So if you jump ahead, it's just a turn of the page, to Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. God is saying, because you ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, now there are consequences. And he, he first addresses the serpent, and at the end he addresses the, the man. Uh, but to the woman, to Eve, he says... I will sharpen the pain of your pregnancy, and in pain you will give birth, and you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. So there's this broken, skewed uh, relationship now between man and woman that goes against his original design. This is saying, this isn't what I wanted for you, but here are the consequences of your sin. Like, one of the most dear relationships that you will have will be hard. (laughs) There will be a power struggle and a power dynamic between men and women. Now, if that was the end of the story, we would just say, too bad, it's the way the world is. But even in the Old Testament, as soon as um, God is working to restore and rescue his people, he begins to plant seeds of promise for a restoration of men and women in authority as rulers, as leaders together. So, for instance, in Exodus, this is page 78, in Exodus 19, verse 5, this is... Moses. This is uh, at Mount Sinai. God says, now, if you will obey me and keep my covenant, you will be my own special treasure. Kind of keep that in your mind. And among all the peoples of the earth, for all the earth belongs to me, and you will be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. This is the message you must give the people of Israel. So there's a little bit of a a little bit of a callback to Genesis when God says, "I like this world is mine. I created it," but also a callback to how we will relate to God, not just men as priests, but all people as a royal priesthood or a kingdom of priests. What what do priests do? Well, we talked about this, I guess it's been a few years ago now. <laughs> I, I think like the, the series in Leviticus we did was just last summer, but it was like three summers ago. Priests come into the presence of God, and they draw other people into the presence of God. So in the garden, Adam and Eve walked with God. No mediator necessary. The promise here is just as Adam and Eve walked with God in the garden, now you, all of you, men and women alike, can come into the presence of God. For now, there will be a 
priestly class. It will be a, like, a title. And as far as we can see in the Old Testament, all of the priests were men. But there will come a time, God says, where you will be a kingdom of priests. And there are a few examples of women in leadership roles. So in the Old Testament, you basically have three leadership roles. Kings, prophets, and priests. We actually have a few women, they are exceptions, they are not the norm, who fulfill the role of prophet. And Deborah actually acts as a judge, but a ruler over her people. And the Bible doesn't explain, oh, this is an exception and it's because the men just didn't step up when they should have. That's something that some humans will input into the text. It's just a, ma it's a matter of calling and gifting. So when uh, Miriam, Hannah, and Huldah, you'll have to Google her, uh, act prophetically, it's just because God is speaking to his people through these women. When Deborah is raised up as a judge, it's because she is called and she is gifted by God, given the tools she needs to lead her people, to, to save her people from outside forces. Now, here's where things really get exciting. I'm sure you're just, isn't this fascinating? Okay, I know, I know this is very, this is pretty heady. Joel 2. Joel 2 is a very famous Old Testament passage because it comes back up in Acts. So at Pentecost, this is after Jesus' death and resurrection, the Holy Spirit comes and things start to get a little weird. And everybody's thinking, what is wrong with those people? But Peter gets up and says, we knew this was coming. Let me explain what's happening. It was predicted in Joel 2. In Joel 2, it says, I will pour out my spirit upon all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams and your young men will see visions. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. God had a vision for men and women to be leaders, to be called, to be gifted. It is established in the garden. It is distorted in the fall. It is promised in the Old Testament and it is fulfilled in the New Testament, in particular at the, on the day of Pentecost. Your sons and daughters, men and women, will act in this role that was considered a leadership role, speaking God's words to other people. It's the fulfillment. Now, we get Paul talking a little bit about how this might look in terms of gifting, because prophecy is just one of the gifts. So let's jump ahead to Romans 12. In my Bible, it's very marked up, so I hope that you will also mark it up. But in, uh, in Romans chapter 12, verse 4, this is one of the examples where Paul starts to talk about gifting, and he, he does not separate the things that men do from the things that women do. He talks about the gifting of the Holy Spirit that is poured out on men and women alike within the church context in order to serve the church and the world. And so he says here, just as our bodies have many parts and each part has a special function, so it is with Christ's body. We are many parts of one body and we all belong to each other. In his grace, God has given us gifts for doing certain things well. So if God has given you the ability to prophesy, speak out 
with as much faith as God has given you. If your gift is serving others, serve them well. If you are a teacher, teach well. If your gift is to encourage others, be encouraging. If it is giving, give generously. If God has given you leadership ability, take the responsibility seriously. And if you have a gift for showing kindness to others, do it gladly. Don't just pretend to love others. Really love them. Hate what is wrong. Hold tight to what is good. So there's leadership gifts, there's giving gifts, there's encouraging gifts, and they're all wrapped up and poured out on the church. Galatians chapter 3. Jump through just, jump forward just a few pages to page 1222. Now, this is not a text that speaks specifically to women in church leadership. But it is talking about the fact that we are all heirs. Typically, historically, traditionally, something that only men could have. So you might be an heir to a uh, a piece of property. You might be an heir to a kingdom. You might be an heir to a title. And here, Paul is expanding that definition to include both men and women. He says, for you are all children of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And now that you belong to Christ, you are true children of Abraham. Interestingly, the Greek here just says true sons of Abraham. But that's not because Paul isn't saying women become men. It's because it's a, it's a declaration of like inheritance. <laughs> it's a declaration of equality. It's a call back. If you noticed, uh, Paul says there is no Jew or Gentile, no slave or free, male and female. You would expect it to say what? Or female. But Paul is again, he's pointing us back to Genesis 1. He said, this is what God had in mind all along. That men and women are blessed to fill the earth, to rule and to reign. You are true true children of Abraham. You are heirs in God's promise. To Abraham belongs to you. So to say, for instance, that Joe, who's a Gentile, can't be a leader doesn't make sense in this kingdom economy. <laughs> like in the kingdom, Joe is still a Gentile, Frank is still a Jewish person, you know? But everything has been leveled out. Men and women have an equal standing. They stand on equal ground in God's kingdom. Is the next passage I have up there, First Peter? Yeah. This one is dynamite. So I'm going to ask you to stand. I want you to pay attention here. We stand because we trust the Bible and to honor the one who is trying to reveal himself to us through it.
This is 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But uh, you are royal priests. You are a chosen people and you are royal priests. A holy nation. God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God for he called you out of the darkness and into his wonderful light. Let me just read it again. You are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood. You all, you, you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's very own possession. And as a result, you can show others the goodness of God. For he called you out of the darkness and into his wonderful light. You guys can have a seat. You see how this is a callback to Exodus? There is a promise. And here it is expanded, not just to be priests. So Christians uh, generally believe that there's something called the priesthood of all believers. Like anybody who puts their faith in Jesus can come to God, uh, like come to Jesus directly. And here he includes the phrase royal. What is royalty? It's leadership. It's the ability to exercise authority. This is, this is saying like you are kings and queens. Like if you've ever read the Chronicles of Narnia, you're kings and queens in God's kingdom. You are priests because you show, you walk into God's light and you show God's goodness to the world. What was established in the Garden of Eden was promised in the Old Testament is now being fulfilled in the New Testament. And so here's, here's my conclusion. The most obvious teaching of Scripture is that called and gifted men and women should serve as leaders. When you look at the big, the big story, when you look at where it's all headed, and there's a few texts in Revelation that kind of show this as, a, as the final fulfillment as well, from creation to Old Testament promise to New Testament fulfillment, you find women and men operating as priests, kings, and prophets in the New Testament. Now, there are a few texts that some have built a belief that women should be excluded from places of authority, even as teachers in the church. What do we do with them? Now, I'm not going to go into all of them. I'm going to go into perhaps the most difficult one. And there, if, if, you, if you or a friend has a strong opinion that women should not be leaders in the church, you, you must do some work to at least understand what I am describing as the teaching of like the whole of Scripture. And so to overcome the teaching of Genesis and the promise of the Old Testament and the fulfillment of the New Testament, you better have some really strong arguments to, to, to overcome that, that big story arc, right? So here's where people go. Uh, and sometimes people can confuse like messages to how men and women should relate in marriage or in households in particular and confuse that with this debate. Now they're related and I'm not going to get into that either. Uh, there's, there's places like 1 Corinthians where 
Paul seems to say women shouldn't speak, but he must mean something different than what appears on the surface because a few chapters before he says when women prophesy. So I'm going to focus on 1 Timothy 2 verse 12. And so this is just a few flips back. Paul says here, at least in our English translation, I do not let women teach men or have authority over them. Let them listen quietly. So, this seems pretty clear, right? Well, it's clear in the English. It's actually very muddy in the original Greek. And one of the most Muddy parts is this word to have authority does not seem to be a neutral word. It seems to actually be a very strong word, uh, something more like to usurp authority or to uh, teach, uh, like, like to do so in like a really overpowering or manipulative way. And it might even be that to teach and to have authority is like one statement from Paul. So women shouldn't teach like abusively in the church. Why would women be doing that in this particular church in Ephesus? Well, there was a particular cult, a woman-only cult to Artemis, and that was like one of the main focal points of the city's devotion and culture. And so you can imagine that women are coming out of that cult, giving their life to Jesus, and have a belief that women are better than men because of the teachings of that cult. But just to return to that word, authatain, Am I getting There it is. It's very hard to know what this word means. It's very unclear what the word means. So if you were to survey all of the Greek literature that we have from the period, you would find that the word only appears somewhere between five and 12 times. Some of the, like you can, there's a range because some of the texts are disputed as to whether or not they're actually coming from the period or not. Now, that's not a lot to go on. So if I imagine if you only heard a word once in your whole life and there was no dictionary to tell you what it meant, would you be able to figure out what the word means? So if I, if I said, hey, you shouldn't flubber anymore. What am I telling you not to do? I'm not going to explain it to you. I'm not going to use the word again. Do I mean don't cross your legs? Do I mean stop looking at your phone? Do I mean you shouldn't drink coffee? Don't wear hats. <laughs> like, I'm just, look, don't flubber Like, the word is very problematic. The translation, it's very hard to apply. And it, it's, I would say it's irresponsible to build or to exclude half of the population from leadership based on this word. Because, in particular, it, it doesn't seem to jive with the rest of the teaching of Scripture. Now, if it was supporting... You know, if the whole Bible was saying, this is the way God said, this is the way God meant it from the beginning, this is how it's going to be forever and ever, then it'd be like, okay, well, I guess it fits. But because it holds tension with the text that I just outlined, it's worth giving pause. It's worth saying, maybe, and this is a principle that I learned in seminary, maybe we should use the clear teaching of Scripture to understand the unclear teaching of Scripture instead of the other way around. Okay. <laughs> it's amazing how often this happens. You wouldn't think that people would use difficult passages that are hard to understand and build an entire belief system around them, but it happens. 
I think that is irresponsible. The other dynamic that I just want you to keep in mind, if you could put up the triangle, and uh, if you remember, this was like six years ago, we did a series on 1 Corinthians. Does anybody remember that one? I think it was called Messy. I remember it. It was, it was uh, we talked about this issue. In fact, we, it was, uh, Marilyn was retiring and, it was, and I decided to teach on uh, women's head coverings. Do you remember this? Some of you were here, okay. One of the challenges we have when we read the Bible, and this doesn't give us permission to get out the scissors and just say, ah, this one doesn't apply. But one of the things we find is that as we move from the then and there, these texts were written to particular churches, or in the case of 1 Timothy, a particular person who is pastoring a church. This isn't a public letter that everybody's reading. This is a personal letter to advise Timothy in a particular situation. As we interpret text, we're trying to get from the then and there, what is Paul saying to Timothy? How does it apply to us? Now, sometimes it's a straight line. Like, you are heirs of God. You're children of Abraham. You're saved by grace through faith. Um, love one another. Like, that, that's, pr- that's pretty easy. You can, you can say, yes, that applies. Some things, like women should cover their heads when they prophesy, is like, I don't understand. What does that have to do with anything that's going on today? It's because sometimes it would seem in the Bible that it's pointing, the teaching is pointing to an eternal principle. Or maybe another way of putting it is it's an eternal principle that's being applied to the context and the particular people of the Bible. And so from the Bible, we try to figure out what the eternal principle is. For instance, women covering their head, culturally normative. There's no reason to shake the boat. Like women, the Bible teaches freedom and liberty in, in Jesus. So, or I should say, and but, we're also trying to make sure that the gospel is palatable to the culture where it's not going to contradict the culture. So, in that context, it might be, let's, let's be missional. Let's think about people outside. Let's not put barriers between them and receiving the, or hearing the gospel with an open mind. So maybe women should cover their heads. That's the application. And so the application today, I'm not going to get into because I'll just get myself in trouble. <laughs> uh, but, but it's like it's particular to people, to places, to cultures, to church. Like there's certain ch- churches love God and God loves them, where it'd be inappropriate for me to wear anything but a suit and tie. And if I were to walk in and, I mean, these aren't jeans, but they're sort of like jeans. They're from American Eagle. Does that make them jeans? Uh, Anyway, no one would listen to what I was saying if I walked into a church where the norm was suit and tie. So I would wear a suit and tie. And that would be an appropriate thing for a mentor of mine to say to me, like, hey, you should just suck it up and wear the suit and tie. I'd be off. I don't like ties. They hurt my neck. They make me all... I don't like them. <laughs> so when I wear them at your wedding, just know that it's out of love. <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> okay. There's so much here. I'm going to, tr- I'm going to pu- put this somewhere where you can read through it. And it's, there, there, there are people making arguments that come to the opposite conclusion. Show them love. Show them grace. Show them patience. Maybe, maybe you're in that room. 
It's good to dialogue. It's good to look. It's good to search the scriptures with an open mind to say, huh, I know that that one passage says that elders should only have one wife. What is that actually saying? Does that, is that actually saying that women are excluded? Well, maybe not. Maybe that's actually a jump in logic. So, sorry, I'm just, I read this this past week. Um, it'd be like if you went to a golf course and you saw a sign that beards must be well-groomed to, to play on this course. This is hypothetical. Does that mean that all men must grow beards? Does that mean that women are excluded from playing golf on this course? No, it just means if you're a man, trim it up a little, you know? I, I mean, now, again, I don't understand golf course culture, but you can imagine that a golf course would have that rule. Has anyone ever seen any funny golf course etiquette? Maybe it's changing. Anyway, my encouragement is to, like, love one another as you engage in this or any other challenging debate that has a lot of pain. And here's, I'm just going to share. I had a root canal this past week. I recommend them to anybody. <laughs> it's the tooth pain that I wouldn't wish on anyone. But there was a point where, because I was in so much pain, my field of vision actually got very narrow. And that's what will happen sometimes in these controversial topics. Instead of being able to see the, the big view of what the Bible's teaching, if there's pain, if, if people are feeling attacked, the field of view will narrow, and they'll want to grab the brick, maybe out of defense for what they deemed important. And you, and, and you see this happening in the New Testament. When Jesus gets controversial, people get angry. Let me apply this to the room. How has God gifted you? I don't mean just what are you good at. Where do you see God giving you what you, what you wouldn't have without him. What do you, and, and if you, maybe it's compassion. Maybe it's the gift of encouragement. Maybe it's generosity. Maybe it's that you want, you're at, you, it's okay to ask God for more. Like, God, I, I want some gifting. In fact, Paul says everyone should desire eagerly the gift of prophecy. So, like, ask, ask for prophecy. What is God calling you to? This is something that's discerned in community. As you start to share, like, one, like share in tripods, share in life groups, ask for prayer. Let people encourage you, steer you, listen to God on your behalf. What is God calling you to? And is, has there been a ceiling put on by someone out there, by a teaching that maybe you're starting to wonder if it was ever true. Maybe, maybe, you're, maybe your mind was changed, but your heart still is kind of caged in. Because you're a woman, because you're a child, because of what you've done in your past, because of what you're doing in your present, because you can't, like, you're repentant, but you're still stuck in some kind of addiction. God cares so much about the posture of your heart and he doesn't call anybody to perfection before he invites them to be 
a royal priesthood. Where have you put the ceiling on what God has gifted you to do or what God is calling you into? God, speak to us now. Pour out your gifting. Give us calling and purpose, direction. Show us where and how to be your ambassadors. Thanks again for listening to the podcast of the Vineyard Church, Chester Springs. We hope you share this with your friends and family and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.